Encyclical Letter Satis Cognitum on the Unity of the Church by Pope Leo XIII, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Unity of the Church Encyclical Letter Satis Cognitum June 29, 1896, Part 2. But as this heavenly doctrine was never left to the arbitrary judgment of private individuals, but in the beginning delivered by Jesus Christ, was afterwards committed by him exclusively to the magisterium already named, so the powers of performing and administering the divine mysteries, together with the authority of ruling and governing, was not bestowed by God on all Christians indiscriminately, but on certain chosen persons. For the apostles and their legitimate successors alone, these words have reference. Going into the whole world, preach the gospel. Baptizing them. Do this in commemoration of me. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. And in like manner, he ordered the apostles only, and those who should lawfully succeed them, to feed, that is, to govern with authority all Christian souls. Whence it also follows that it is necessarily the duty of Christians to be subject and to obey. And these duties of the apostolic office are, in general, all included in the words of St. Paul. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and the dispensers of the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 4.1 Wherefore Jesus Christ bade all men present and future, follow him as their leader and savior. And this not merely as individuals, but as forming a society, organized and united in mind. In this way, a duly constituted society should exist, formed out of the divided multitude of peoples, one in faith, one in end, one in the participation of the means adapted to the attainment of the end, and one as subject to one and the same authority. To this end, he established in the Church all those principles which necessarily tend to make organized human societies, and through which they attain the perfection proper to each. That is, in it, the Church, all who wished to be the sons of God by adoption might attain to the perfection demanded by their high calling and might obtain salvation. The Church, therefore, as we have said, is man's guide to whatever pertains to heaven. This is the office appointed unto it by God, that it may watch over and may order all that concerns religion, and may, without let or hindrance, exercise, according to its judgment, its charge over Christianity. Wherefore they who pretend that the Church has any wish to interfere in civil matters, or to infringe upon the rights of the state, know it not, or wickedly calumniate it. God indeed even made the church a society far more perfect than any other. For the end for which the church exists is as much higher than the end of other societies, as divine grace is above nature, as immortal blessings are above the transitory things on the earth. Therefore the church is a society divine in its origin, supernatural in its end, and in the means proximately adapted to the attainment of that end. But it is a human community inasmuch as it is composed of men. For this reason, we find it called in Holy Writ by names indicating a perfect society. It is spoken of as the house of God, the city placed upon the mountain to which all nations must come. But it is also the fold, presided over by one shepherd, and into which all Christ's sheep must betake themselves. Yea, it is called the kingdom which God has raised up, and which will stand forever. Finally, it is the body of Christ. That is, of course, his mystical body, 
but a body living and duly organized and composed of many members. Members indeed, which have not all the same functions, but which, united one to the other, are kept bound together by the guidance and authority of the head. Indeed, no true and perfect human society can be conceived which is not governed by some supreme authority. Christ, therefore, must have given to his church a supreme authority to which all Christians must render obedience. For this reason, as the unity of the faith is of necessity required for the unity of the church, inasmuch as it is the body of the faithful, so also for the same unity, inasmuch as the church is a divinely constituted society, unity of government, which affects and involves unity of communion, is necessarily jure divino. The unity of the church is manifested in the mutual connection or communication of its members, and likewise in the relation of all the members of the church to one head. St. Thomas, in the Pars Prima Secundae of the Summa Theologica, question 39, article 1. From this, it is easy to see that men can fall away from the unity of the church by schism, as well as by heresy. We think that this difference exists between heresy and schism, writes St. Jerome. Heresy has no perfect dogmatic teaching, whereas schism, through some episcopal dissent, also separates from the church. In which judgment, St. John Chrysostom concurs. I say this and protest, he writes, that it is as wrong to divide the church as to fall into heresy. Wherefore, as no heresy can ever be justifiable, so in like manner there can be no justification for schism. There is nothing more grievous than the sacrilege of schism. There can be no just necessity for destroying the unity of the church. St. Augustine, against the letter of Parmenianus, Book 2, Chapter 2, Number 25. The nature of this supreme authority, which all Christians are bound to obey, can be ascertained only by finding out what was the evident and positive will of Christ. Certainly Christ is a king forever. And though invisible, he continues unto the end of time to govern and guard his church from heaven. But since he willed that his kingdom should be visible, he was obliged, when he ascended into heaven, to designate a vicegerent on earth. Should anyone say that Christ is the one head and the one shepherd, the one spouse of the one church, he does not give an adequate reply. It is clear indeed that Christ is the author of grace in the sacraments of the church. It is Christ himself who baptizes. It is he who forgives sins. It is he who is the true priest who hath offered himself upon the altar of the cross, and it is by his power that his body is daily consecrated upon the altar. And still, because he was not to be visibly present to all the faithful, he made choice of ministers through whom the aforesaid sacraments should be dispensed to the faithful as said above. Chapter 74 For the same reason, therefore, because he was about to withdraw his visible presence from the church, it was necessary that he should appoint some one in his place to have the charge of the universal church. Hence, before his ascension, he said to Peter, Feed my sheep. St. Thomas, in his Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 4, Chapter 76. Jesus Christ, therefore, appointed Peter to be the head of the church, and he also determined that the authority instituted in perpetuity for the salvation of all should be inherited by his successors, in whom the same permanent authority of Peter himself should continue. And so he made that remarkable promise to Peter and to no one else, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18 To Peter the Lord spoke, to one, therefore, that he might establish unity upon one. St. Pacianus in his letter to Sopronius, number 11. Without any prelude, he mentions St. Peter's name and that of his father, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of John, and he does not wish him to be called any more Simon, 
claiming him for himself according to his divine authority, he aptly names him Peter, from Petra, the rock, since upon him he was about to found the church. St. Cyril of Alexandria, in commenting on the Gospel of John, Book 2, in chapter 1, verse 42. From this text it is clear that by the will and command of God the church rests upon St. Peter, just as a building rests on its foundation. Now the proper nature of a foundation is to be a principle of cohesion for the various parts of the building. It must be the necessary conditions of stability and strength. Remove it, and the whole building falls. It is consequently the office of St. Peter to support the church, and to guard it in all its strength and indestructible unity. How could he fulfill this office without the power of commanding, forbidding, and judging, which is properly called jurisdiction? It is only by this power of jurisdiction that nations and commonwealths are held together. A primacy of honor and the shadowy right of giving advice and admonition, which is called direction, could never secure to any society of men unity or strength. The words, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, proclaim and establish the authority of which we speak. What is the it? writes Origen. Is it the rock upon which Christ builds the church, or the church? The expression indeed is ambiguous, as if the rock and the church were one and the same. I indeed think that this is so, and that neither against the rock upon which Christ builds his church, nor against the church, shall the gates of hell prevail. The meaning of this divine utterance is that, notwithstanding the wiles and intrigues which they bring to bear against the church, it can never be that the church committed to the care of Peter shall succumb or in any wise fail. For the church, as the edifice of Christ, who has wisely built his house upon a rock, cannot be conquered by the gates of hell, which may prevail over any man who shall be off the rock and outside the church, but shall be powerless against it. Also from Origen, his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, volume 12, number 2. Therefore God confided his church to Peter, so that he might safely guard it with his unconquerable power. He invested him, therefore, with the needful authority, since the right to rule is absolutely required by him who has to guard human society really and effectively. This, furthermore, Christ gave. To thee will I give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he is clearly still speaking of the church, which a short time before he had called his own, and which he declared he wished to build on Peter as on a foundation. The church is typified not only as an edifice, but as a kingdom, and everyone knows that the keys constitute the usual sign of governing authority. Wherefore, when Christ promised to give to Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he promised to give him power and authority over the church. The Son committed to Peter the office of spreading the knowledge of his Father and himself over the whole world. He who increased the church in all the earth and proclaimed it to be stronger than the heavens, gave to a mortal man all power in heaven when he handed him the keys. St. John Chrysostom, in a homily on the Gospel of Matthew. In the same sense he says, Whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. This metaphorical expression of binding and loosing indicates the power of making laws, of judging, and of punishing and the power is said to be of such amplitude and force that God will ratify whatever is decreed by it. Thus it is supreme and absolutely independent, so that, having no other power on earth as its superior, it embraces the whole church and all things committed to the church. The promise is carried out when Christ the Lord, after his resurrection, 
having thrice asked Peter whether he loved him more than the rest, lays on him the injunction, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. That is, he confides to him, without exception, all those who were to belong to his fold. The Lord does not hesitate. He interrogates, not to learn, but to teach. When he was about to ascend into heaven, he left us, as it were, a vicegerent of his love, and so because Peter alone of all the others professes his love, he is preferred to all, that being the most perfect, he should govern the more perfect. St. Ambrose, in his Exposition on the Gospel according to Luke, Book 10, Numbers 175 and 176. These, then, are the duties of a shepherd, to place himself as leader at the head of his flock, to provide proper food for it, to ward off dangers, to guard against insidious foes, to defend it against violence, in a word, to rule and govern it. Since therefore Peter has been placed as shepherd of the Christian flock, he has received the power of governing all men for whose salvation Jesus Christ shed his blood. Why has he shed his blood? To buy the sheep which he handed over to Peter and his successors. St. John Chrysostom in On the Priesthood, Book 2. And since all Christians must be closely united in the communion of one immutable faith, Christ the Lord, in virtue of his prayers, obtained for Peter that in the fulfillment of his office he should never fall away from the faith. But I have asked for thee that thy faith fail not. Luke 22:32, And furthermore commanded him to impart light and strength to his brethren as often as the need should arise. Confirm thy brethren. Also Luke 22:32. He willed then that he whom he had designated as the foundation of the church should be the defense of its faith. Could not Christ, who confided to him the kingdom by his own authority, have strengthened the faith of one whom he designated a rock to show the foundation of the church? St. Ambrose on On the Faith, Book 4, Number 56. For this reason, Jesus Christ willed that Peter should participate in certain names, signs of great things which properly belong to himself alone, in order that identity of titles should show identity of power. So he, who is himself the chief cornerstone in whom all the building, being framed together, groweth up in a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2.21, placed Peter, as it were, a stone to support the church. When he heard, Thou art a rock, he was ennobled by the announcement. Although he is a rock, not as Christ is a rock, but as Peter is a rock. For Christ is by his very being an immovable rock. Peter, only through this rock. Christ imparts his gifts and is not exhausted. He is a priest and makes priests. He is a rock and constitutes a rock. St. Basil in a homily on penance. He who is the king of his church, who hath the key of David, who openeth and no man shutteth, who shutteth and no man openeth. Apocalypse 3.7 Having delivered the keys to Peter, declared him prince of the Christian commonwealth. So too he, the great shepherd who calls himself the good shepherd, constituted Peter the pastor of his lambs and sheep. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Wherefore Chrysostom says, He was preeminent among the apostles. He was the mouthpiece of the apostles and the head of the apostolic college, at the same time showing him that henceforth he ought to have confidence, and as it were, blotting out his denial, he commits to him the government of his brethren. He saith to him, If thou lovest me, be over my brethren. Finally, he who confirms in every good work and word, 2 Thessalonians 2.16, commands Peter, to confirm his brethren. Rightly, therefore, does St. Leo the Great say, 
From the whole world Peter alone is chosen to take the lead in calling all nations, to be the head of all the apostles and all the fathers of the church, so that, although in the people of God there are many priests and many pastors, Peter should by right rule all of those over whom Christ himself is the chief ruler. From his fourth homily, chapter 2. And so St. Gregory the Great, writing to the emperor, Morris Augustus, says, It is evident to all who know the gospel that the charge of the whole church was committed to St. Peter, the apostle and prince of all the apostles, by the word of the Lord. Behold, he hath received the keys of the heavenly kingdom. The power of binding and loosing is conferred upon him. The care of the whole government of the church is confided to him. It was necessary that a government of this kind, since it belongs to the constitution and formation of the church as its principal element, that is, as the principle of unity and the foundation of lasting stability, should in no wise come to an end with St. Peter, but should pass to his successors from one to another. There remains, therefore, the ordinance of truth, and St. Peter, persevering in the strength of the rock which he had received, hath not abandoned the government of the church which had been confided to him. St. Leo the Great, in his third homily, chapter 3. For this reason, the pontiffs who succeed Peter in the Roman episcopate receive the supreme power of the church, Jure Divino. We define, declare the fathers of the Council of Florence, that the holy and apostolic see and the Roman pontiff holds the primacy of the church throughout the whole world, and that the same Roman pontiff is the successor of St. Peter, the prince of the apostles, and the true vicar of Christ, the head of the whole church, and the father and teacher of all Christians. And that full power was given to him, in blessed Peter, by our Lord Jesus Christ, to feed, to rule, and to govern the universal church, as is also contained in the Acts of Ecumenical Councils and in the Sacred Canons. Similarly, the Fourth Council of Lateran declares, The Roman Church, as the mother and mistress of all the faithful, by the will of Christ obtains primacy of jurisdiction over all other churches. These declarations were preceded by the consent of antiquity, without the slightest doubt or hesitation, the bishops of Rome, and revered them as the legitimate successors of St. Peter. Who is unaware of the many and evident testimonies of the Holy Fathers which exist to this effect? Most remarkable is that of St. Irenaeus, who, referring to the Roman Church, says, With this Church, on account of its preeminent authority, it is necessary that every Church should be in concord. In his Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 3, Number 2. And St. Cyprian also says of the Roman Church that it is the root and mother of the Catholic Church, the chair of Peter, and the principal church whence sacerdotal unity has its source, from his letter to Cornelius. He calls it the chair of Peter because it is occupied by the successor of Peter. He calls it the principal church on account of the primacy conferred on Peter himself and his legitimate successors. And the source of unity because the Roman Church is the efficient cause of unity in the Christian commonwealth. For this reason, Jerome addresses Damasus thus, My words are spoken to the successor of the fisherman, to the disciple of the cross. I communicate with none save your blessedness, that is, with the chair of Peter. For this I know is the rock on which the Church is built. From his letter to Damasus. Union with the Roman See of Peter is to him always the public criterion of a Catholic. I acknowledge every one who is united with the See of Peter, also from his letter to Damasus. And for a like reason, St. Augustine publicly attests that the primacy of the apostolic chair always existed in the Roman Church. And he denies that anyone who dissents from the Roman faith can be a Catholic. You are not to be looked upon as holding the true Catholic faith if you do not teach that the faith of Rome is to be held, from his homily 120, number 13.
so too St. Cyprian. To be in communion with Cornelius is to be in communion with the Catholic Church. In the same way, Maximus the abbot teaches that obedience to the Roman pontiff is the proof of the true faith and of legitimate communion. Therefore, if a man does not want to be, or to be called, a heretic, let him not strive to please this or that man, but let him hasten before all things to be in communion with the Roman See. If he be in communion with it, he should be acknowledged by all and everywhere as faithful and orthodox. He speaks in vain who tries to persuade me of the orthodoxy of those who, like himself, refuse obedience to His Holiness the Pope of the Most Holy Church of Rome, that is, to the Apostolic See. The reason and motive of this he explains to be that the Apostolic See has received and hath government, authority, and power of binding and loosing from the incarnate Word Himself, and according to all holy synods, sacred canons, and decrees, in all things and through all things, in respect of all the holy churches of God throughout the whole world, since the word in heaven who rules the heavenly powers binds and loosens there. From the De Floratio Ex Epistola Ad Petrum Illustrem. Wherefore what was acknowledged and observed as Christian faith, not by one nation only, nor in one age, but by the East and by the West and through all ages, this Philip the priest, the pontifical legate at the Council of Ephesus, no voice being raised in dissent, recalls, No one can doubt, yea, it is known unto all ages, that St. Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, the pillar of the faith and the ground of the Catholic Church, received the keys of the kingdom from our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, the power of forgiving and retaining sins was given to him who, up to the present time, lives and exercises judgment in the persons of his successors, from the third act of the Council of Ephesus. The pronouncement of the Council of Chalcedon on the same matter is present to the minds of all. Peter has spoken through Leo, to which the voice of the Third Council of Constantinople responds as an echo. The chief prince of the apostles was fighting on our side, for we have had, as our ally, his follower and the successor to his see. And the paper and the ink were seen, and Peter spoke through Agatho. From Act Two of the Council. In the formula of Catholic faith drawn up and proposed by Hormistus, which was subscribed at the beginning of the 6th century in the great Eighth Council by the Emperor Justinian, by Epiphanius, John, and Mena, the patriarchs, this same is declared with great weight and solemnity. For the pronouncement of our Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, etc., cannot be passed over. What is said is proved by the result, because Catholic faith has always been preserved without stain in the apostolic see. We have no wish to quote every available declaration, but it is well to recall the formula of faith which Michael Paleologus professed in the Second Council of Lyon. The same Holy Roman Catholic Church possesses the sovereign and plenary primacy and authority over the whole Catholic Church, which truly and humbly it acknowledges to have received, together with the plenitude of power from the Lord himself, in the person of St. Peter, the prince or head of the apostles, of whom the Roman pontiff is the successor. And as it is bound to defend the truth of faith beyond all others, so also if any question should arise concerning the faith, it must be determined by its judgment. From the fourth act of the Council. But if the authority of Peter and his successors is plenary and supreme, it is not to be regarded as the sole authority. For he who made Peter the foundation of the Church also chose twelve, whom he called apostles, Luke 6.13. And just as it is necessary that the authority of Peter should be perpetuated in the Roman pontiff, so by the fact that the bishops succeed the apostles, they inherit their ordinary power, and thus the episcopal order necessarily belongs to the essential constitution of the church. 
although they do not receive plenary or universal or supreme authority, they are not to be looked upon as vicars of the Roman pontiffs, because they exercise a power really their own and are most truly called the ordinary pastors of the peoples over whom they rule. But since the successor of Peter is one, and those of the apostles are many, it is necessary to examine into the relations which exist between him and them according to the divine constitution of the church. Above all things, the need of union between the bishops and the successors of Peter is clear and undeniable. This bond once broken, Christians would be separated and scattered, and would in no wise form one body and one flock. The safety of the church depends on the dignity of the chief priest, to whom, if an extraordinary and supreme power is not given, there are as many schisms to be expected in the church as there are priests. From St. Hieronymus, in his Dialogue Against Luciferanos, number 9. It is necessary, therefore, to bear this in mind, notably, that nothing was conferred on the apostles apart from Peter, but that several things were conferred upon Peter apart from the apostles. St. John Chrysostom, in explaining the words of Christ, asks, Why, passing over the others, does he speak to Peter about these things? And he replies unhesitatingly and at once, Because he was preeminent among the apostles, the mouthpiece of the disciples, and the head of the college from his 88th homily on the Gospel of John, number 1. He alone was designated as the foundation of the church. To him he gave the power of binding and loosing. To him alone was given the power of feeding. On the other hand, whatever authority and office the apostles received, they received in conjunction with Peter. If the divine benignity willed anything to be in common between him and the other princes, whatever he did not deny to the others he gave only through him, so that whereas Peter alone received many things, he conferred nothing on any of the rest without Peter participating in it. From St. Leo the Great, his homily number 4, chapter 2. From this it must be clearly understood that bishops are deprived of the right and power of ruling if they deliberately secede from Peter and his successors, because by this secession they are separated from the foundation on which the whole edifice must rest. They are therefore outside the edifice itself, and for this very reason they are separated from the fold, whose leader is the chief pastor. They are exiled from the kingdom, the keys of which were given by Christ to Peter alone. These things enable us to see the heavenly ideal and the divine exemplar of the constitution of the Christian commonwealth, namely, when the divine founder decreed that the church should be one in faith, in government, and in communion, he chose Peter and his successors as the principal and center, as it were, of this unity. Wherefore St. Cyprian says, The following is a short and easy proof of the faith. The Lord saith to Peter, I say to thee, thou art Peter. On him alone he buildeth his church. And although after his resurrection he gives a similar power to all the apostles and says, As the Father hath sent me, etc., still in order to make the need of unity clear, by his own authority, he laid down the source of that unity as beginning from one, from On the Unity of the Church, number four. And Optatus of Malavis says, You cannot deny that you know that in the city of Rome the episcopal chair was first conferred on Peter. In this Peter, the head of all the apostles, hence his name Cephas, has sat, in which chair alone unity was to be preserved for all lest any of the other apostles should claim anything as exclusively as his own. So much so, that he who would place another chair against that one chair would be a schismatic and a sinner. From 
on the schism of the Donatists, Book 2. Hence the teaching of Cyprian, that heresy and schism arise and are begotten from the fact that due obedience is refused to the supreme authority. Heresies and schisms have no other origin than that obedience is refused to the priest of God, and that men lose sight of the fact that there is one judge in the place of Christ in this world. From his twelfth letter to Cornelius, number five. No one, therefore, unless in communion with Peter, can share in his authority, since it is absurd to imagine that he who is outside can command in the church. Wherefore, Optatus of Malevis blamed the Donatists for this reason, against which gates of hell we read that Peter received the saving keys, that is to say, our prince, to whom it was said by Christ, To thee will I give the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and the gates of hell shall not conquer them. Whence is it, therefore, that you strive to obtain for yourselves the keys of the kingdom of heaven, you who fight against the chair of Peter? But the episcopal order is rightly judged to be in communion with Peter, as Christ commanded, if it be subject to and obeys Peter. Otherwise it necessarily becomes a lawless and disorderly crowd. It is not sufficient for the due preservation of the unity of the faith that the head should merely have been charged with the office of superintendent, or should have been invested solely with the power of direction. But it is absolutely necessary that he should have received real and sovereign authority which the whole community is bound to obey. What had the Son of God in view when he promised the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter alone? Biblical usage and the unanimous teaching of the fathers clearly shows that supreme authority is designated in the passage by the word keys. Nor is it lawful to interpret in a different sense what was given to Peter alone and what was given to the other apostles conjointly with him. If the power of binding, loosening, and feeding confers upon each and every one of the bishops, the successors of the apostles, a real authority to rule the people committed to him, certainly the same power must have the same effect in his case, to whom the duty and feeding the lambs and sheep has been assigned by God. Christ constituted Peter not only pastor, but pastor of pastors. Peter therefore feeds the lambs and feeds the sheep, feeds the children and feeds the mothers, governs the subjects and rules the prelates, because the lambs and the sheep form the whole of the church. From St. Bruno Bishop, in his commentary on John, part 3, chapter 21, number 55. Hence those remarkable expressions of the ancients concerning St. Peter, which most clearly set forth the fact that he was placed in the highest degree of dignity and authority. They frequently call him the Prince of the College of the Disciples, the Prince of the Holy Apostles, the Leader of that Choir, the Mouthpiece of all the Apostles, the Head of that Family, the Ruler of the whole world, the first of the apostles, the safeguard of the church. In this sense, St. Bernard writes as follows to Pope Eugenius, Who art thou? The great priest, the high priest. Thou art the prince of bishops and the heir of the apostles. Thou art he to whom the keys were given. There are, it is true, other gatekeepers of heaven and other pastors of flocks but thou art so much the more glorious as thou hast inherited a different and more glorious name than all the rest. They have flocks consigned to them, one to each. To thee all the flocks are confided as one flock to one shepherd, and not alone the sheep, but the shepherds. You ask how I prove this? From the words of the Lord. To which, I do not say, of the bishops, but even of the apostles have all the sheep been so absolutely and unreservedly committed? If thou lovest me, Peter, 
feed my sheep. Which sheep? Of this or that people, of this city or country or kingdom? My sheep, he says, to whom therefore it is not evident that he does not designate some, but all. We can make no exception where no distinction is made. In On Consideration, Book 2, Chapter 8. But it is opposed to the truth and in evident contradiction with the divine constitution of the Church to hold that while each bishop is individually bound to obey the authority of the Roman pontiffs, taken collectively the bishops are not so bound. For it is the nature and object of a foundation to support the unity of the whole edifice and to give stability to it, rather than to each component part. And in the present case, this is much more applicable, since Christ the Lord wished that by the strength and solidity of the foundation, the gates of hell should be prevented from prevailing against the church. All are agreed that the divine promise must be understood of the church as a whole, and not of any certain portions of it. These can indeed be overcome by the assaults of the powers of hell, as in point of fact has befallen some of them. Moreover, he who is set over the whole flock must have authority not only over the sheep dispersed throughout the church, but also when they are assembled together. Do the sheep, when they are all assembled together, rule and guide the shepherd? Do the successors of the apostles assembled together constitute the foundation on which the successor of St. Peter rests in order to derive therefrom strength and stability? Surely jurisdiction and authority belong to him, in whose power have been placed the keys of the kingdom of heaven, not alone in all provinces taken singly, but in all taken collectively. And as the bishops, each in his own district, command with real power not only individuals but the whole community, so the Roman pontiffs, whose jurisdiction extends to the whole Christian commonwealth, must have all its parts even taken collectively, subject and obedient to their authority. Christ the Lord, as we have quite sufficiently shown, made Peter and his successors his vicars, to exercise forever in the church the power which he exercised during his mortal life. Can the apostolic college be said to have been above its master in authority? This power over the Episcopal College to which we refer, and which is clearly set forth in Holy Writ, has ever been acknowledged and attested by the Church, as is clear from the teaching of general councils. We read that the Roman pontiff has pronounced judgments on the prelates of all the churches. We do not read that anybody has pronounced sentence on him. From Hadrian II, in his Third Discourse to the Roman Synod, in the year 869. The reason for which is stated thus, There is no authority greater than that of the Apostolic See, from Nicholas in his 56th letter to the Emperor Michael. Wherefore Gelasius on the decrees of council says, That which the first See has not approved of cannot stand, but what it is thought well to decree has been received by the whole church. It has ever been unquestionably the office of the Roman pontiffs to ratify or to reject the decrees of councils. Leo the Great rescinded the acts of the Conciliabulum of Ephesus. Damasus rejected those of Rimini, and Hadrian I those of Constantinople. The 28th canon of the Council of Chalcedon, by the very fact that it lacks the assent and approval of the Apostolic See, is admitted by all to be worthless. Rightly, therefore, has Leo X laid down in the Fifth Council of Lateran that the Roman pontiff alone, as having authority over all councils, has full jurisdiction and power to summon, to transfer, to dissolve councils, as is clear not only from the testimony of Holy Writ, from the teaching of the Fathers and of the Roman pontiffs, and from the decrees of the sacred canons, but from the teaching of the very councils themselves. 
Indeed, Holy Writ attests that the keys of the kingdom of heaven were given to Peter alone, and that the power of binding and loosening was granted to the apostles and to Peter. But there is nothing to show that the apostles received supreme power without Peter and against Peter. Such power they certainly did not receive from Jesus Christ. Wherefore, in the decree of the Vatican Council as to the nature and authority of the primacy of the Roman Pontiff, no newly conceived opinion is set forth, but the venerable and constant belief of every age. Nor does it beget any confusion in the administration that Christians are bound to obey a twofold authority. We are prohibited in the first place, by divine wisdom, from entertaining any such thought, since this form of government was constituted by the counsel of God himself. In the second place, we must note that the due order of things and their mutual relations are disturbed if there be a twofold magistracy of the same rank set over a people, neither of which is amenable to the other. But the authority of the Roman pontiff is supreme, universal, independent. That of the bishops, limited and dependent. It is not congruous that two superiors with equal authority should be placed over the same flock, but that two, one of whom is higher than the other, should be placed over the same people, is not incongruous. Thus the parish priest, the bishop, and the pope are placed immediately over the same people. From St. Thomas Aquinas, in his Commentary on the Fourth Book of Sentences, Distribution 17, Article 4. So the Roman pontiffs, mindful of their duty, wish above all things that the divine constitution of the Church should be preserved. Therefore, as they defend with all necessary care and vigilance their own authority, so they have always labored, and will continue to labor, that the authority of the bishops may be upheld. Yea, they look upon whatever honor or obedience is given to the bishops as paid to themselves. My honor is the honor of the universal church. My honor is the strength and stability of my brethren. Then am I honored when due honor is given to every one. From St. Gregory the Great in his 300th letter to Eulogius. In what has been said, we have faithfully described the exemplar and form of the church as divinely constituted. We have treated at length of its unity. We have explained sufficiently its nature and pointed out the way in which the divine founder of the church willed that it should be preserved. There is no reason to doubt that all those who by divine grace and mercy have had the happiness to have been born, as it were, in the bosom of the Catholic Church, and to have lived in it, will listen to our apostolic voice. My sheep hear my voice. John 10.27 And that they will derive from our words fuller instruction and a more perfect disposition to keep united with their respective pastors, and through them with the supreme pastor, so that they may remain more securely within the one fold and may derive therefrom a greater abundance of salutary fruit. But we, who, notwithstanding our unfitness for this great dignity and office, govern by virtue of the authority conferred on us by Jesus Christ, as we look on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12.2, feel our heart fired by his charity. What Christ has said of himself we may truly repeat of ourselves, Other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. John 10.16 Let all those, therefore, who detest the widespread irreligion of our times, and acknowledge and confess Jesus Christ to be the Son of God and the Savior of the human race, but who have wandered away from the spouse, listen to our voice. Let them not refuse to obey our paternal charity. Those who acknowledge Christ must acknowledge him wholly and entirely. 
The head and the body are Christ wholly and entirely. The head is the only begotten Son of God, the body is his church. The bridegroom and the bride two in one flesh. All who dissent from the scriptures concerning Christ, although they may be found in all places in which the church is found, are not in the church. And again, all those who agree with the scriptures concerning the head and do not communicate in the unity of the church are not in the church. St. Augustine, in his letter against the Donatists, also called On the Unity of the Church. And with the same yearning, our soul goes out to those whom the foul breath of irreligion has not entirely corrupted, and who at least seek to have the true God, the Creator of heaven and earth, as their Father. Let such as these take counsel with themselves, and realize that they can in no wise be counted among the children of God, unless they take Christ Jesus as their brother, and at the same time the church as their mother. We lovingly address to all the words of St. Augustine. Let us love the Lord our God, let us love his church, the Lord as our father, the church as our mother. Let no one say, I go indeed to idols, I consult fortune-tellers and soothsayers, but I leave not the church of God, I am a Catholic. Clinging to thy mother, thou offendest thy father. Another too says, Far be it from me, I do not consult fortune-telling, I seek not soothsaying, I seek not profane divinations, I go not to the worship of devils, I serve not stones. But I am on the side of Donatus. What doth it profit thee not to offend the father who avenges an offense against the mother? What doth it profit to confess the Lord, to honor God, to preach him, to acknowledge his son, and to confess that he sits on the right hand of the father, if you blaspheme his church? If you had a beneficent friend whom you honored daily, and even once calumniated his spouse, would you ever enter his house? Hold fast, therefore, O dearly beloved, hold fast altogether God as your father, and the church as your mother. From his commentary on Psalm 88. Above all things, trusting in the mercy of God, who is able to move the hearts of men and to incline them as when he pleases, we most earnestly commend to his loving kindness all those of whom we have spoken. As a pledge of divine grace, and as a token of our affection, we lovingly impart to you in the Lord, venerable brethren, to your clergy and people, our apostolic blessing. End of the encyclical letter, Satis Conitum, on the unity of the Church. June twenty ninth, eighteen ninety six, by Pope Leo the Thirteenth, read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.